Hello, this is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. There's nothing that we like better at the Bureau of Lost Culture than a half-remembered, half-forgotten countercultural story. But how about a half-remembered, half-forgotten countercultural musical genre? If I said to you the word skiffle, what would you think of? Perhaps some tool that you used to flip a fried egg with in the kitchen, or maybe a flat white fish caught in the North Sea. Or, like me, you probably knew that it had something to do with music, but you weren't quite sure what. Well, recently I came across a book called Roots, Radicals and Rockers, a terrific story of teenagers, of counterculture, of the 1950s, of Soho Bohemia, and of Skiffle, and of how Skiffle changed the world. And Skiffle, it turns out, was an extraordinary musical genre in terms of the effect it had on British youth culture, and how, even as a lost countercultural musical genre, it provided, if you like, the prototype for punk in the 1970s. So I'm very pleased that we have the author of the book, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, How Skiffle Changed the World, with us today. He happens to be a radical and a rocker himself. It is the musician Billy Bragg. Welcome, Billy. Hello, Stephen. How are you, mate? Very good, thank you. Um, Billy, we're going to dive into this lost history, the lost world of Skiffle and your book. Uh, but before we do that, I'm going to break you in easy. Why don't we start off with this one? Who is Billy Bragg? Oh, he's, uh, he's the bloke I turned into when I left school. <laughs> Because not many people know, but my actual first name is Stephen. William's my middle name. So, but nobody calls me Stephen anymore, apart from my dentist and my aunties. <laughs> well, tell us some more about Stephen then. Well, he's mostly, he's mostly Billy Bragg now. He's kind of um, someone who was inspired to make music by Bob Dylan, by the music of, uh, uh, soul music of America during the civil rights movement, by punk. And who had the opportunity in the 1980s to see if pop and politics mixed. Which you did, very much so. So you've been a musician, radical yourself, activist, but also in the last sort of 10 years or so, you've been an author, right? Yeah, it's good. I mean, the thing about writing books is it, it really draws you in. So it's a good way of clearing your palate before you've got to re- make another album. Right. And this book we're going to talk about today, your last book, Roots, Radicals and Rockers, I mean, as well as the story of Skiffle, uh, which is an extraordinary thing in itself. It does, for me, it sort of put it all into context in terms of the emergence of the teenager in Britain and Europe and America, I suppose, in a way too. And it's it's an extraordinary lost story. And I know we're going to dig into that um, too. But for anybody who doesn't know what Skiffle is or has heard the word like I had and is kind of vague about it, give us a quick explanation what was skiffle to define it um is difficult but i would say it's um british schoolboys in the mid 1950s playing american roots music so that would be the sort of easiest way to explain what the phenomena was about obviously there's a lot of other dimensions to it as well but it's it's importance in our pop culture is because it was skiffle that introduced the guitar into uh, into british pop culture before right. that, there were there were guitar players. They were around, but they were very often peripheral figures. You know, if you heard a guitar player on the BBC, which had at the time of Skiffle had a monopoly on broadcasting, they would probably be either a singing cowboy, mm. uh, or um, novelty act, novelty act, or a calypsonian, because right. the the influx of the Windrush generation in the late 1940s or the 1950s was 
defined culturally by Calypso music. Although Calypso comes from only uh, one island, from Trinidad, it came to define the whole of the West Indian um, immigrant population. And the BBC used the Calypsonians because Calypso was all about uh, topical ideas and things. They used them in in uh, in their broadcasting. So you would hear these people, but they would be they'd be peripheral figures. And maybe that was part of the attraction for kids. You know, not many people knew someone who, who played guitar. Right, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's difficult because this is a conversation. We could could have just played a tune, but I mean, can you describe the sound? I mean, the skiffle sound. It's um, got its roots firmly in American roots music, but it's an, an interesting hybrid because because it evolved out of trad jazz. Trad jazz now we think of as old geezers music, but teenagers were into it in the uh, 1950s because the up-tempo songs, you could jive to them and they wanted to jive. Um, so they Skifflers kind of took that up-tempo bit of uh, trad jazz, the exciting bit, and played it on a guitar and a washboard, scraping on a washboard. Um, because most of the Skiffle songs were about trains and the washboard made a kind of, you can make a kind right. of train noise with it. So it was a it was a very do it yourself music, literally because you know they were using things like your mum's washboard, and then you would make something called a a tea chest bass, which would be using an old uh, uh, forty five box that was used to import loose leaf tea, and you would stick a broom pole uh, on it and a piece of uh, twine through the middle of the bottom of the box, and it, you could make a rude, very rudimentary. <laughs> bass noise it wouldn't say notes it wouldn't say music but you could make a very rudimentary kind of boom, 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 boom kind of thing to go along with this this train sound and that's your basic skiffle lineup the washboard the guitar and the the teacher's bass book isn't a, it's about skiffle but it's all about the whole culture of it it's about where it came from what happened to it the people involved in it the personalities the songs obviously um but like what was it that pulled you in well, I was always interested in skiffle as a phenomenon because um, the more I learned about it, the more it seemed to be very similar to my experience during punk rock in the in 1977. And ultimately, um, what got me to sit down and write the book was, for a while, I was um, when I had a band on the back of the, uh, the last album I did, uh, Tooth and Nail. We were playing Dead Flowers by the Rolling Stones. And um, we rehearsed it up when we shared a stage with them at Glastonbury, we rehearsed the song up. And I was doing this kind of sort of, you know, tongue-in-cheek intro about how, how the, uh, the British uh, invented Americana and the, using uh, Dead Flowers as an example, but then linking it to Skiffle and saying, look, you know, this is how we sold Americana back to the, to the Americans. And what, what, in the context of this uh, rap, when I mentioned the King of Skiffle, the name of the King of Skiffle, Lonnie Donegan, audiences, British audiences, would, would snigger. Mm. And it got me really angry. It made me really sort of fired up to put the record straight because the, the, the importance of Lonnie Donegan is absolutely paramount in the development of British pop in the 1960s. All of those bands that, that were part of the British invasion um, of the American charts uh, after the Beatles um, uh, in, in 1963, 1964. They, they're all formerly skiffle bands. They absolutely, crucially got their first opportunity to step up and play um, listening to Lonnie Donegan. And, that, and that's, you know, something that's no longer recognised. Sadly, Donegan 
his biggest hit, My Old Man's a Dustman, wasn't really the uh, a, a song that represented who he was and what he'd right. done. You know, yeah. sadly, it was a novelty song and he's remembered for that. But actually, he was, you know, he was in, in I would argue, in the mid-50s, he was the best blues singer in Britain, perhaps in Europe. Amazing, isn't it? I mean, you, you talk about this and... I think he'd had a sort of love for novelty singers, hadn't he, when he was younger, and he sort of ended up coming back to that, I suppose, when he became a you know kind of pop pop star. But well, you've got to think of My Old Man's a Dustman like you think of Viva Las Vegas or Girls, Girls, Girls by Elvis. Right. You know, because Donegan was really was the very first, like Elvis. There was no career path for him. Yeah. The, the idea was you started off playing this kids' music, and then you moved on to the variety circuit. You know, when, when Donegan first toured, he didn't tour in rock and roll clubs. There were no rock and roll clubs. Yeah. There weren't even any jazz clubs. When, when um, Lennon and McCartney and Harrison, well, certainly McCartney and Harrison, don't know whether John Lennon saw him, but L McCartney and Harrison saw Donegan in 1956 when he was on tour. They went to the, to the Liverpool Empire. It was a variety show. He did two right. shows a day. He had a, a dancers, a comedian, a trick cyclist, a dog act. <laughs> and Donegan came on at the end and played some songs. And that was the, that for him was success. So it kind of, it's like Tommy Steele. It makes sense for them to go on to a more variety based uh, idea. Nobody, you know, the Beatles never thought when they started out that they'd still be playing these songs in 10 years. You know, it's not an uncommon thing. But with Donegan, I'm afraid, you know, he, he took a very similar path to Elvis. Pete Townsend, the Beatles, the Stones, Eric Clapton, Alexis Corner, they were in skiffle groups or were massively influenced by a skiffle, but they seem to later sort of, well, not all of them, but they seem to be a bit shy about it somehow, or at least the music journalists, the people who were writing about them seem to be shy about it, and it seemed to get left out. And then that's, that's I mean, tell us about that, because we're going we're gonna to come back to what it was, but it is interesting that it has been sort of forgotten or kind of put in the cupboard, right? Well, you've got to remember that the average um, skiffle player was in their early teens. You know, there's a, there's a great clip on YouTube of Jimmy Page playing skiffle when he's 14 years old on a BBC TV programme. That's, that's the age of most skifflers. They weren't Donegan's age. They were predominantly, um, you know, very young people. And, and there were, you know, there were, you know, literally, they estimate somewhere between 30 and 50,000 skiffle groups knocking around at peak skiffle in 1957. What? what? Uh, this, this is a, this, yeah, this is at the time. This is based on the number of guitars sold, which went from <laughs> 5,000 to 250,000 in the space of three years. Now you got you got. I mean, most I'm sure most of your listeners will be familiar with the the moment uh, in 1957 when uh, Paul McCartney met John Lennon at the church fete while his band was playing skiffle. Right. Well, you got to you got to imagine every town in the country that same experience was happening to that generation. That was their defining experience. That was the thing that made them different from their parents' generation. That they were they were literally were kids. They were little kids. Now. Fast forward 10 years to 1967, which is a, a very significant year in the development of rock music because two things happen. What first is Sgt. Peppers and the second is Rolling Stone starts publishing. And, and what happens in that, in that moment is that pop music goes from being something for uh, kids, a purely commercial thing based on singles to something for adults 
based on albums uh, and much more thought put into it. And that's a, this is a crucial turnaround here. Suddenly, it's very it's a serious business. So if you're Jimmy Page and you go to America with Led Zeppelin for the first time and you're on tour and the guy from Rolling Stone says to you, who inspired you to first play guitar, Jimmy? You're not about to say, you know, Chas McDevitt and Nancy mm. Whiskey. You know, you're going to say Lead Belly. You're going to say right. you know, Wolf. You're going to say, you know, Muddy Waters. So what happens is Skiffle becomes a kind of thing that they did but they don't want to talk about. The songs that they wrote, when they were 14 years old, that now they'd rather you didn't see them, which is understandable. It is understandable. But but what happened is that it kind of like got written out of our history. I mean, I you know I don't want to name names in here, but I found in the NME uh, one of the one of the classic uh, 60s British invasion songwriters talking about how what an influence Lonnie Donegan had been on him, and we happened to share an agent me and this guy. So through my American agent, I got to chat with him. He flatly denied ever being into Skiffle, flatly denied ever listening <laughs> to Lonnie Donegan. And I couldn't argue with him. But so as a consequence of that, the the books that were written about Skiffle tended to be by people who were there. Chas McDavitt probably wrote the, uh, the definitive I Was There book. Donegan didn't write a book, but Chas McDavitt, he was, had the other big Skiffle hit, which is Freight Train, people, your listeners might have heard of, with Nancy Whiskey. He wrote a really good book, but it was a kind of I was there book. What nobody had written was a book that sought to put Skiffle into context of the development of post-war British culture and shaped it around the experience of the first generation of teenagers. And that's what I set out to do with my book, to give Skiffle its, its proper cultural context and make that link with, with um, punk, because punk and Skiffle were similar um, anti-commercial impulse at the root. And also, you know, you said then you give that extraordinary statistic about the number of guitars sold and the number of skiffle bands that there might have been in the UK. Uh, and it's quite interesting because, you know, a few people I've interviewed for this show, that people who have been involved in the counterculture, quite a few of them have said, I was in a skiffle band when I was younger, including Michael Moorcock, you know, the writer uh, who have been interviewing at the moment. And, um, you know, he was definitely of that generation. It was like... Moorcock didn't just be in a skiffle band, he wrote a skiffle fanzine which kind of then followed Skiffle and turned into a kind of f sort of neo-folk magazine, which right. is really interesting. You know, because, because again, the, the fanzine is, a, is a, 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 another uh, connection with punk. Everything that happened in punk happened 20 years earlier in Skiffle, everything. Mm. You know, and I think it helped my experience in punk really helped me get a perspective on Skiffle because I thought, okay, well, if that happened and this happened, what if this happened? And sure enough, it almost right. always did. So it's young kids, lots of them. I mean, a real lot of them. So it, it comes almost from, from nowhere and then it explodes, but it's an underground thing. So you would see it, Billy, would you, as countercultural skiffle? Yes, 100% countercultural. Yeah, I would say that. Because first of all, um, it's a rejection of the music that's in the charts, which at the time, you know, in the 1950s was mostly crooners. It's a rejection of... Uh, pre-packaged youth culture, because there was no youth culture. I mean, before Skiffle, there wasn't even a, a defined consumer group that you would call teenagers. You know, the BBC played music for adults and music for children. Mm. It wasn't until uh, uh, the Skiffle uh, Guitar Club radio program started in 57 that there were actually programs for teenagers. So they, they would create in their own culture. It's really, really crucial that... Um, you know, you understand that they were taking the means of production. I mean, I spoke to one guy who'd been a skiffler 
back in the day, and he said that the average the average skiffler felt they had more in common with an African-American sharecropper in the United States of America than they did with their own dad. That what they were doing was a rejection of their parents' culture. It was like right. saying, no, that's not who I am. I'm this person. I'm this person here. And there's an even more interesting thing, I think, going on with young women, which, which wasn't so well recorded because they predominantly there weren't many of those teenage bands. There was very, 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 very few uh, women involved in it. It was almost all boys. It was almost as, as sexually different as playing football was, you know, hmm. in those days. But um, the young women played a very, very important role because they were a new, uh, a new consumer force because they, after the war, there was plenty of work. They went and worked in factories where their uh, mothers had worked during the war. There was a boom in sort of small industry, small production. They were living at home mostly, so they had no expenses. They had money to spend on cosmetics, on clothes, and on records. I mean, the sales of those three, in after rationing ended in 54, just went through the roof. But mm. what these young women didn't have, they didn't have their own social space. You know, they didn't want to go, well, they couldn't go in a pub on their own because it just wasn't acceptable in those days. They didn't want to go to the tea rooms because they might see their auntie. The milk bars were full of little kids. So they began to frequent the coffee bars, the cappuccino bars that were starting to open. Right, and that's an important story in Soho, right? It's a sort of Soho 50s story, the kind of proliferation of these cup, cappuccino espresso coffee bars. And that whole kind of youth culture, bohemian society that was going on at the time. And I suppose you talk about it in the book as young people turning away a bit from America and, you know, looking towards cool Europe. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that, why it happened here in, in Soho. These young women that I'm talking about weren't taking their cues from American culture, from Marilyn Monroe and from New York. They were taking their cues from Milan and from Paris from, you know, uh, the left bank. They were much hipper than the mainstream flashy American culture that was coming in. And coffee, cappuccino was part of that, to go and sit in a, in a coffee bar. And what in these coffee bars, um, they often had, and this is ironic because I know it's Italian coffee, but they would have a Spanish guitar player playing a bit of flamenco. That was part of the vibe, along with the formica and the rubber plants. Um, but what happened was young men started coming into these, these places where the young women were and playing with their bands. And this suddenly this is where Skiffle finally started to make commercial sense because most of these young teenage bands were playing, you know, they were playing in school gyms, church halls, scout huts. They weren't, there was no circuit to play on. There were no clubs. Um, so the, the, the young women created the space and the fertile ground for which Skiffle grew out of. Without those young women doing that, there would have been nowhere for them to play. So they played an absolutely, absolutely crucial role. You said in, this is this is from the book actually, and you're talking about the American novelist and war correspondent, Martha uh, Gellhorn. She'd come to London and was writing a piece on these espresso cappuccino bars. Um, and she said, at the mocker, an accordion player of North African appearance was surrounded by a group of young people singing easily, loudly, all together, happily, 
of Amore. The boy at the Espresso Machine sang too. Further along Frith Street, Gellhorn found the Granada, a cafe frequented by Negroes, where she saw black and white couples dancing to jazz in the basement as three young Greeks with lines of thought and suffering between their brows disputed the issues of the day at a nearby table. Later, she was very taken with a young woman who she described as a beauty impossible to place, Chinese, Javanese, Siamese, telling a story to her friend, a girl who may have been Spanish, Arab, Cuban. I mean, it, that's an amazing picture of this kind of of a time, isn't it? And I mean, multicultural time. You've got to also look at the backdrop of where that comes from. It's it's a thing that people don't really take on board much anymore. But the rationing of of foodstuffs didn't end until 1954. Mm. You know, so someone, you know, uh, let's say John Lennon, born in 1940. He had to wait till he was 14 years old before he could go into a sweet shop and buy what he wanted. Mm. So imagine an entire generation mm. grown up under those restrictions. Suddenly, they can have whatever it is they want. And at the same time, the BBC are not playing this rock and roll music from America that they want to hear. I think there's an, in Skiffle, there's an element of, well, you know, sod you, if you're not going to play it, we're going to play it ourselves. Right. We're going to get guitars and we're going to make this music for ourselves. You know, it's a it's a real kind of punk attitude that makes these kids pick up guitars and make their own culture because it's unprecedented in British uh, teen history. I mean, there are no teenagers to have a teen history, but you know, it's it's never happened before. That that generation are absolutely key, and they set the tone for the next uh, 60, 70 years. There's another important important theme for me here, which is the sort of role of the BBC in a kind of gentle cultural censorship. It wasn't censorship like maybe in. Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union, but it was sort of censorship by selection. So the BBC were playing this very kind of staid diet of kind of easy listening and crooners and heavily orchestrated music, you know, with that much kind of sex appeal and groove in it. So what was their what was their big uh, program? It's called Housewife's Choice. The little woman at home doing the housework. Right. So you talk and you talk about some of the people we might come back to who sort of you know brought about Skiffle, Ken Collier and stuff, and they'd been abroad and they'd heard like American forces network radio uh, and then you t- I think you're talking maybe it's a bit late I'm not quite sure uh, of the chronology of it but you you've said about the fact that when you know commercial tv and stuff comes a bit later it's like it breaks the BBC's cultural stranglehold which is this very middle class uh, sort of staid version of of civilized culture for the populace isn't it yeah it is it's for people to listen to in their drawing rooms the mm. BBC and commercial TV comes along and 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 challenges that and it, it needed challenging as well and because they didn't have the huge budgets of uh, the BBC they had, to, they had to buy in their um, their programs from America and, and for a lot of um, kids programs they bought in Cowboys series and for some reason in America Cowboys often had a guitar and they often sang as well they didn't just shoot bad guys they sang as well. So what happened was there were on the back of that there was a in 19, uh, 1955 there was a sudden appearance in the charts of what you might what we would now call country music, but they didn't have that those terms back then. And they were sort of like people like Slim Whitman, who no one had ever seen before, a kind of smooth American guy playing an acoustic guitar, singing a song called Rosalie. The record industry at the time was driven by crazies, by either dance crazies or mm. sound crazies. So once Slim Whitman had had this massive hit, um, other record labels started to bring in these 
kind of country sounding records, you know, guitar, guy playing a guitar, you know, very, we would now think of it as quite, you know, like Jim Reevesy. It's not mm. like classic country, not like Hank Williams or, or Johnny Cash. It's much more smooth than that. And, and the British tried to get in on that as well. And, um, uh, Jimmy Young, who later became a DJ on Radio 2, he at the time was a crooner. And he um, recorded the soundtrack of a, a film called The Man from Laramie, which was a movie with James Stewart that was big at the time. And he had a hit with that. But if you look on the sleeve of that record, the picture of Jimmy Young, he's wearing a dinner jacket. There's something not quite right about that. So what happens is at the end of that year, with, with the, the idea of a guy singing with a guitar in people's minds, Rock Around the Clock is also a hit. Mm. And someone realises that uh, at Decca, they have this song in their catalogue called Rock Island Line by the Lonnie Donegan Skiffle Group. And um, they realise that this is part, both part of the rock craze and also part of this Slim Whitman fired up right. guitar thing. Why don't they? And because, because no, you know, no... Um, British record companies had these authentic guys who didn't wear a suit and tie right. to, to sing. And Donegan is this guy. So they really put the record out as a, on, a, on the fly, really, just to try and cash in. And it just, it just goes gangbusters. It's amazing, isn't it? The music industry always at it, always trying to cash in on what's, uh, what's hit with the kids. But, you know, I was listening to Rock Island Line, uh, Donegan's original recording of it earlier, and I've got to say, I mean, it's a very, very strange record, I think. It's a very strange record. I mean, it's the, for the first, the first thing is the first half of it is a monologue between a train driver and a signalman. Yeah, and it picks up speed and then it absolutely lets rip. Right? It really lets rip. I mean, it probably, you know, it's, I mean, there was, this is the other thing that it had in its favour. There was absolutely nothing like it on the airwaves in the UK right. in 1956. Nothing at all. I mean, it was even a hit in America. That's how right. forward looking it was. And, and, but going mad and speeding up became Lonnie Donegan's sort of uh, signature move. He, a lot of his songs do that. And I think it's great because, again, that's very punk rock, you know, kind of throwing away any idea of, of decorum and, uh, and speed. But I think we always say a little bit about the context in, in which it was recorded. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could tell us how it actually emerged because originally skiffle was this kind of secondary genre played at the interval of these jazz gigs, right? When the, most of the band was sort of taking a rest and the punters, you know, went to get a drink. It was stuff that was just played in the background, right? It was, it was. I mean, we have to delve here into trad jazz. Now rock and roll has a very negative uh, attitude toward trad jazz. And I think that is based on the fact that in the early days, it was the trad jazzers who ran all the clubs. They had they had the first club uh, circuit in the UK. You know, the Cavern yeah. was originally a, a trad jazz club, as was the Marquee. And one of the rules they had in trad jazz was you couldn't play no electric instruments. The trad jazzers were kind of like they were a back-to-basics movement. You know, they rejected... Mm. Um, the big swing bands, they said that wasn't authentic. In many ways, they were kind of like the trad jazzers are a bit like the Ramones, you know, they're like back to basics. Right. You know, they were trying to, to, they said that the only really good music was made in New Orleans around the, the turn of the 19th, 20th century. And they tried to play that kind of music. And the, the key uh, figure in that scene was a guy named Ken Collier. 
And he was a he was a trumpet player, and in order to learn how to play New Orleans jazz, the only access he had to actually be apart from trying to play like the records was actually to go to New Orleans and find the guys and mm. get them to teach him, because everybody who wanted to play trad jazz could only learn from the records. And one of the thing about the the, the, tr the music they loved, most of it was recorded in the 20s and the 30s. And it was recorded on often one microphone originally. So in order that everybody in the band should get on the record, they blew very hard. Mm. Subsequently, Ken Collier and his mates in the 1940s, when they were trying to emulate this, they figured that's how you play. They didn't know anything about sort of tone and timbre, you know, they didn't know anything about it. Just blow as hard as you can. Blew as hard as they could. As a consequence, after 30 minutes, their lips were numb and they couldn't play no more. <laughs> you know, I just, I just want to jump in before, before you carry on with this, because there's, the, you, there's this genius thing in the book, which, uh, which I, I loved, actually, uh, in, in respect of Ken Collier. And you say something like, um, for an American youth who wanted to discover themselves, they went on the road. I mean, we know this later with Kerouac. You know, you got on a train or you got in a car and you went across the continent. For British youths who wanted to, you know, discover themselves, discover the world, they had to get on a boat. And you talk about him. It's a fascinating story, isn't it? To, to do all this stuff, what did he do? And I'm guessing that was a common thing, is that he joined the Merchant Navy, right? The only way he could think of how to get to New Orleans. There was no other way for a working-class lad to, to go to New Orleans. It was impossible. He couldn't get a, 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 a work permit. To go and work in America, Amazing. it was you know going to America in them days was like going to the moon. You know, you Amazing. just heard people about it. You never, nobody knew anyone who went there. You know, so eventually, when when they um, when their lips went numb and they couldn't play anymore, so they didn't lose their audience. They would pick up acoustic guitars, Ken Collier and his mates, and they would play uh, these old Lead Belly songs, broadly speaking, um, and this. Well, they, they refer to it as the breakdown spot. And this was, in some ways, this was a kind of a musical education. You know, in the, in the, uh, in the 1950s, there would, be, there would be gig. You could go to a gig where someone who had a load of great jazz records would play the jazz records on a gramophone and talk about the records and explain them to you because there was no other way of finding out anything about these people, mm. you know. And they could fill the Wigmore Hall doing this. Wigmore Hall holds about 1,200 people. So these, these um, you know, record events were, were very popular. So the idea of, I mean, initially the, the Collier's band originally, his brother played records in the breakdown. And, if, and then they, they said, well, let's, you know, let's get together and play some of these, actually play some of these songs while we talk about them. And that was where Skiffle came from. And it represents a revolutionary moment in British pop because on the bandstand, um, the, the, the guitar is in the rhythm section. It's at the back, with, right. or the banjo, is at the back with the piano, with the uh, bass and the drums. And the front line is the brass. What happens in the skiffle sec section is the, the guitar player comes to the front of the stage and takes control of the gig. And Pete Townsend witnessed this. He saw yeah. the Ken Collier band in Ealing Town Hall in the mid-50s. He actually witnessed this happen. Donegan come to the front of the stage and take over the gig. And he, he said to me, he knew then that this music, his father's music, because his dad was in a swing band. He said, he, I knew 
my my father's music was over and that this was the future. Mm. It's a revolutionary moment in British pop. And not only is it like the guitar is at the front, because that also opens up the fact that you can do it yourself as well, right? Because you can get a guitar. You don't have to actually put the whole band together. You, you know, it's much easier, isn't it, to get off the ground as a musician playing live music with a guitar and basic instruments. And how many chords do you need to play a Lonnie Donegan song? Same as you need to play a Ramon song. Here's three chords now from a band. No, I mean, that's the, band. that to me is the key tenet of punk rock. It's exactly the same. It's true of Skiffle. So Donegan came out of that Ken Collier uh, jazz, trad jazz, New Orleans jazz band from playing at the interval. That's right, yeah. And then he ended up, um, one of the things about Ken Collier was he was, Donegan was in Ken Collier's band. Donegan and, and Chris Barber was a trombone player. But Collier wasn't easy to get along with. He was a bit of a purist. He had, it was kind of his way or the highway. You know, if Bunk Johnson didn't play it back in New Orleans, back in the day, he wasn't interested in it. And Chris Barber felt that there was a more commercial route to bring this music to a bigger audience. So um, when Ken Collier tried to fire Lonnie Donegan, the band got together and fired Ken Collier. Um, wow. Which is, yeah, a kind of revolution, <laughs> counter-revolutionary coup. And, um, and it's this band, the, the Chris Barber Jazz Band, mm. that goes to make their first album for Decca in, uh, in July 1954. And because they've got, you know, they've got a, bring some new material, not just the old standards everyone was playing, because Collier's band already made an album. They needed to make something fresh. They didn't have enough material for, for this, uh, for an album for Decca, and the producer was a bit worried about this. So Donegan said, well, let's do some of the Skiffle songs. So they recorded um, Rock Island Line and John Henry as a Skiffle group with uh, Donegan on, on guitar, uh, Beryl Bryden on uh, washboard, and uh, Chris Barber on double bass. And those were included on the album. When the album came out as a 10-inch um, in 1955, they were included on the album as, you know, credited to the Lonnie Donegan uh, Skiffle Group. And, uh, and, you know, the record sold okay. Trad jazz was really, really popular. But, they, they, you know, they didn't release the Skiffle songs as a, a, uh, as a single until this thing happened in mid middle of 1955 with the country and western singers. And to me, what is significant about the recording of uh, uh, Rock Island Line on the 13th of July, 1954, is that it's just eight days after Elvis Presley records That's All Right, Mama. That's All Right, Mama, right. God, yeah. Yeah, for, uh, for Sam Phillips. And I think there's a crucial connection here because you've got um, uh, white kids trying to play black music and taking an old blues song and speeding it up and doing something really, really original. The fact that these two things should have happened barely a week apart, I think it's, it's quite significant with regard to the development of British culture, British pop culture. Also recorded in downtime, effectively, right? Yeah, as both well, yeah. Both, both um, in um, recording sessions that weren't going anywhere. Because if you remember, um, Elvis starts playing That's All Right because he's failed to record a, a decent song. He's goofing around with uh, Scotty and Bill. And it's at that point that Sam Phillips says, what are you doing? And they say, I don't, we don't know. So he says, well, back it up and start again. I'll roll the tape. And that's how they record it. So Donegan was more or less doing the same kind of thing. In fact, he, he, was so, he thought it was so lame, Rock Island Line, that when Decker put it out initially, he said in, he disowned it in the, in the <laughs> Melody Maker. It was such a coincidence it happened. Mm. And, and like punk, it took a small scene in Soho mm. and it just went 
gangbusters nationally in the way that, you know, McLaren had control of punk until up until a certain point, I would argue, I would argue up until the white right tour with the clash. And once that happened, he lost control of it and it became a national thing and kids everywhere would, were doing what they imagined punk was themselves. They, they would, that was the great thing about punk and also about skiffle was it empowered you to make the music you wanted to hear. Last week I interviewed um, Andrew Chizovsky and Susan Carrington who run the Roxy in Covent Garden, just around the corner, obviously, from Soho, just across the road, right across Charing Cross Road. Um, you know, they had a hundred a famous hundred nights at the Roxy with the Clash and Stranglers, all those all those bands. What was quite interesting for them is is that because they were it was a similar thing. I mean, they were you know at the beginning, as it were, and they were saying that there wasn't really a sense of like this is what became punk. You know, this kind of international phenomenon. It was kind of kids, you know, very excited. Uh, to be playing this music, lots of different sounds as it happened. Pistols been on tour, and you know, punk was getting closed down effectively. You know, venues couldn't play it, and so they opened this venue in. <clears throat> it used to be a, a, a gay venue in Neil Street. You know, <clears throat> where these bands like just night after night were coming up, and it was you know, it was the same sort of young energy, right? And and I mean, you, you talk about this really because the thing about skiffle and punk this comparison that you make i mean they kind of lasted about the same amount of time didn't they really and sort of went out like a firework almost right they did yeah i mean it, it, skiffle really didn't make that much of a mark on on the charts in the way we think of it today obviously donegan got a huge career out of it but outside of that really there's really just Chas mcdevitt at his hit with uh, nancy whiskey and the vipers uh they had a hit with uh, a song called Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O. The Vipers are interesting because they weren't, Chas McDavid, a bit like Donegan had been in a trad jazz band, but the Vipers were just a bunch of Herberts who suddenly realised you could make music with guitars if you wanted to. So in that sense, they're a bit like the Skiffle Clash, the Vipers. They're a bit hairy. <laughs> I always like them. And Don't You Rock Me Daddy-O, that's the clarion call to that generation, I think. Uh, the first proper British song, because they took an old uh, sea shanty and changed the words around. Nicked right. a line out of Blackboard Jungle and spoke for the for their generation. Right, and it is this real uh, mix of stuff, isn't it? You know, uh, black blues music, prison songs, some of the songs that the Lomaxes, the archivists in America, collected from prisons, spirituals, rock and roll, um, you know, British folk, all mixed up together, all these different sounds kind of coming together. And, you know... Again, compared with punk, you know, Andrew and Susan talking about the bands at the Rocks, they, they, they all sounded quite different. You know, there's a lot of things mixed up together. Looking back, I mean, you know, if you, if you look back closely at punk, it's a lot of different things in there. Everything from, you know, X-Ray Specs to Ian Durin the Blockheads and from, you know, Stranglers. The, the Sex Pistols and the Stranglers to Ultravox. You know, there's lots of different styles in there. And I think... Now, if you were a teenager in 1957 and you were going to a club and it said, tonight's skiffle, you wouldn't be expecting just to hear Lonnie Donegan's songs. What you would be expecting is to hear songs played on guitar. That's right. what skiffle really says. It says guitar music. You know, usually, yes, usually with its roots in, in America, what we would now call Americana, but it could be anything. It could be sea shanties. It could be traditional English folk songs. Could be songs you just made up, but I think the the crucial uh, meeting point for this generation is the acoustic guitar. 
partly because you couldn't get an electric guitar in the UK anyway. So it was all acoustic. So that's kind of bringing us round to the other thing I wanted to uh, talk about with you, which is a, another big part of the book uh, for me, which is the teenager. You know, you've re- referred to it a bit already. And there's, there's a whole chapter in the book on the new Edwardians, the Teddy Boys, just down the road from me in Clapham. I mean, I was interested to read that. It's sort of, is it the first sighting or the first the first press report of of the this young uh, youth culture calling it Teddy Boys is in Clapham, right? And these uh, in some sort of gang fight, isn't it? And um, well, actually, uh, Billy, maybe you could just talk a little bit about that, about the the, the, the the Teddy Boys and how that related to what was going on with Skiffle. Well, the Teddy Boys are a very interesting phenomenon because they're the, the kind of first real proper teenage youth cult. And they come out of a time where um, there was food, uh, clothes rationing. So if you wore flash clothes, you were really saying something about your, your you know, the income that you had and your, your sense of style. And um, the, the Teddy Boys, they stole some of it off of uh, uh, gay culture in Soho, but also they... they some of it comes from spiv culture. They like the kind of broad shoulders, the spivs. But, but and everybody thinks the Teddy Boys are—it's uh, all American culture. But actually, the drape coat was worn by um, members of the Brigade of Guards. They were—they um, were the young men who were kind of the, the most the fashionistas for nineteen late forties, uh, early fifties London. And the crepe sole boots were made in Northampton. They originally desert boots. So it's quite, a, you know, it's quite a, a, a British phenomenon, although it does ape American styles. And they kind of um, began to define themselves in opposition to everything that, uh, that post-war Britain was trying to offer, which was really, you know, constant harping on about the older generation, harping on about the war mm. and, you know, you think you've got it bad, son, you know, blah, blah, blah. They were sick and tired of that. And they were, you know, they, there was nowhere for them to go. They weren't allowed to go to the big dance halls because um, they wanted to jive. Right. And at the time, uh, the big dance halls were more placeful, what we call now, what we would call ballroom dancing now. And the thing about ballroom dancing is it's processional. You know, people go around in a great big circle like a, like a spiral galaxy, you know, in a big circle around the wall. Whereas jiving, you stay on the spot. So if you jive and there's people trying to ballroom, they're going to crash into you. So they banned jiving from uh, ballrooms, but you could jive at um, trad jazz gigs. And there's a great there's a great movie that was made by um, Tony Richardson, and it's kind of it's a short film. It's like a cinema verite film about these young people getting ready for a night out. And they go to this uh, trad jazz gig where Donegan and the, the barber band are playing and, and they jive frantically. And the interesting thing about it is they're, they're, they're jiving to trad jazz. But if you turn the sound down and turn up rock around the clock, you, right. you would never believe they were anything other than American teenagers dancing somewhere in 55. So that in some ways that, jive teddy boy culture was the precursor for what was to come when rock and roll arrived it didn't come with rock around the clock it was in some ways already there it had been there since the the after the war with the american gis coming over with their with their music and their dancing and so these these seeds had already been planted you know there was there was a skiffle club in london um before donegan released rock island line so it wasn't just 
Donegan. There was something going on there, but as often is, I mean, you know, none of these, none of these things come from now. I mean, that part of the reason why I wanted to write the book was that almost every uh, biography of a 1960s British rock star has a few, three or four pages about Skiffle and Lonnie Donegan to explain what, how this person was inspired. But they've all, they always treat the release of rock around the clock like a, as a singularity, like it right. just happened. You know, nothing just happens. Anybody who's lived through through great cultural change will know nothing just happens. So I was interested to try and find out what were the circumstances that led up to this situation because the book that I really wanted to read was a book that put Skiffle into its proper cultural yeah. context, and that's what I tried to do with the book that I wrote. So the one of the things which I mentioned earlier, which was really uh, a, a bit enlightening for me, is that so I've been got this project about underground music in the Soviet Union, which you know particularly the music cut onto X-rays, and uh, you know it really happened in the forties and the fifties and the beginning of the sixties. But one of the, in fact, the only uh, Soviet youth culture group was these was called the still yagi which kind of translates as followers of fashion you know and that was a sort of derisory term but the um uh, quite often when this story has been written about from the west it's been written about in very cliched cold war terms you know like the russian russians we got the we had the good stuff the russians didn't have it and they wanted it and, you know that was the kind of the story with the still yagi what was fascinating to me when i read this is that their, their style was basically based on Teddy Boy and American Rock and Roll, but obviously glimpsed through a few movies which they saw, you know, just after the war and through magazines smuggled in and stuff. So it's a kind of caricatured version of it. But when you were talking about the te teenagers, what I realised is, is that I, I myself in telling the story have been a bit guilty of, uh, or sort of suffered from lack of nuance because what you were saying is, is that the, the teenage phenomena was resisted in the West as well, wasn't it? It was it was unwelcome, you know. Whether it be you couldn't jive in certain places, Bill Haley, you know, not played on the radio. You know, there was a resistance to it too. It wasn't just actually about you know Stalinist repression. It was it was kind of it was almost like a, a, a global thing, wasn't it? That this sh the shock of the teenager, and no more so than with the arrival of Rock Around the Clock, which originally came to the UK, um, was heard in the UK as over the opening credits of a movie called Blackboard Jungle, uh, which came out in 1954. And uh, Blackboard Jungle is uh, a film about a teacher at a school where the, te the kids are all kind of classic hoodlum figures, uh, you know, kind of rebel without a cause kind of thing. Yeah. And um, it, this had a, a, an incredible following in the UK, um, partly because there was nowhere else to see for British kids, what American teenagers really wore. So they wanted to see that and how they danced. But most importantly of all was not only did it have this new song, this song Rock Around the Clock, but it was played through speakers like 10 times bigger than the ones your dad had on his radiogram. So if you really wanted to hear this music as it should be played, you had to hear it in a cinema. So a year later, a movie came called, it was actually called Rock Around the Clock, which was a, a kind of, it wasn't much of a storyline, but it's basically Bill Haley and the Comets helping these, these kids do a gig. And, um, but it had loads of rock and roll in it, lots of different bands in it. So again, this was music you couldn't hear on the radio. This is 
kids that you couldn't see how they dressed unless you saw the movie. So British kids, not only did they go and see this movie en masse, but when the music started playing, they danced in the aisles. They got up and danced around in the aisles, much to the annoyance of the cinema uh, managers who then called the police. So then, you know, you're at this situation now, if you're, if you're a teenager, if you're a teddy boy, you're almost in Blackpool jungle now. The cops have turned up and there's like 50 of you and five coppers. And so basically what happened, I mean, my, my uncle and aunt as teenagers were in a cinema in Romford to see Rock Around the Clock. And when the coppers turned up, they, the teddy boys uh, let off the fire extinguishers. And, the, and the, in the old days in the cinema, uh, they had in the corner rolled up uh, a hose, a fire hose. And if you ran and pulled it, it went off. You didn't have to switch it on. You just had to run with it. And, and once it got to its full length, so they turned the they turned the hoses on the coppers. I mean, it's <laughs> it's just incredible, isn't it? He said, "Oh, everybody wanted to go. Everybody wanted to go." He said, "We went again a week after it. Nothing happened." But he said, "To be there at that moment, it was all over the newspapers. I mean, the, you know, the tabloids were totally freaked out by it by Rock Around the Clock, and you know, allegedly." 3,000 teddy boys rioted in London and they closed. They had to close Tower Bridge because there were teddy boys jiving on Tower Bridge. They did see them as this incredible threat and, and the threat comes playing a guitar. And this, yeah. is, what, this is what inculcates that generation of, of British schoolboys in what thing they need to hold in order to show that they are different from their parents' generation. Right. And yeah. that's why almost every sentient teenage boy had a guitar. That gen the, 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 their parents had been through the war and they felt they'd achieved something and they'd created that peace mm. and they were very, very proud of that. And then all these Herberts are going to come along and spoil their peace. So you can see there you've got mm. the means of a real generational confrontation. You know, this is who we are. And again, this is against the backdrop of the angry young men, you know, John Osborne mm. Mm. and those playwrights, the kitchen sink dramas, right. and also a turn in, in away from traditional art towards pop art as well. Again, right. Skiffle doesn't happen in, in isolation. There's a number of, of challenges to the, to the, you know, the order that the world had been put in after the war. Whether this is a phenomenon of the sense of freedom that came from the end of rationing in 54, mm. it would have happened anyway, just as a new generation who had only known the war came up and didn't want to go back to that way of doing things. I don't know, but certainly Skiffle is part and parcel of an explosion of um, uh, people's culture, both or every, everything from um, commercial television all the way to, as I say, the John Osborne kitchen sink mm -hmm. dramas uh, of, of challenging the, 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 what, what had gone before. Right, I mean, so so you know, people from the north, for instance, coming down to London and becoming playwrights and writers, and and you know, rather than that being a province of of the of the BBC and all that sort of sort of class, um, so and again, like punk, uh, it as you said, it burnt out. So why did it sort of burn out so quickly then, Billy? I mean, I mean, because it did sort of vanish really quickly, didn't it? Yeah, a couple of things happened. I think uh, the first one is that. Um, they were relying on material that had been written years and years ago. They were relying on roots music and there was only so much they could get. Most of them, most of the songs that Donegan sang, he got from recordings made by the American Library of Congress, which he borrowed from their embassy in London. You could go down there and, and for a small fee, um, borrow American books or American uh, recordings as part of their, the Americans cultural uh, program. So there was that. But also what um, 
what Skiffle did was it it robbed Tin Pan Alley of the ability to control the music industry. Tim Pennelly being the music publishers, the right, the sort of house of writers. Yeah, the traditional songwriters, what we would now call the industry, the music industry. Um, it kind of completely short-circuited that for a while, and they totally lost control. And you know, um, they were finding, you know, they, they're finding these songs from nowhere. Where were they getting their songs from? They weren't paying anybody for them. They were traditional songs. Eventually, Tim Pennelly reasserted itself. Tim Pennelly found a way to take a skiffler give him an electric guitar and a quiff. It helped that his name was already Tommy Steele because that was a kind of like a rock and roll name. And then they reoriented Skiffle away from a, an appreciation of roots music and uh, with its roots in, in, in traditional jazz. And they, they repurposed it as a, a music for teenage, teenage girls. Right. And like all uh, great moments in pop it was superseded by the next great moment in pop that's what pop is it's quite ephemeral things come and go all the time but you know it was what happens is the skifflers kind of go underground for a while you know the um one element of them start playing english folk music you right. know because there were these skiffle clubs now around the country lonnie donegan set up many of them and they were they they turned into the folk clubs the folk club circuit right others um went to rhythm and blues. You know, Alexis Corner started yeah. this rhythm and blues club down in Ealing. And a lot of the skifflers who were into Muddy Waters going electric went there. Another group, um, you know, went to Hamburg, uh, you know. And um, there's a lovely quote in the book from a guy um, who had been um, given the job of looking after the Beatles when they first came to Hamburg. He was a wrestler. I can't remember his name now, but he's a, he was a German wrestler. And then he said, ah, he said, they only want to play this washboard music. <laughs> he said, they thought they all thought they were Lonnie Donegan. And this is, to me, this was just a brilliant image of the yeah. Beatles actually, you know, because when they get to Hamburg, they are still basically the quarrymen. Mm. You know, the, because really the, the central unit of the Quarrymen is, is Lennon, McCartney and Harrison. And it's not until they come back from Hamburg that they're the rock and roll band of fame. And then they go on to have massive effect in America as this so-called British invasion. This is the other aspect of it. You see, the thing is, in the UK, these kids in, in 1957, when they're, when they're 13 and 14, 12, George Harrison was 12, I think, when he saw Donegan. What happens in America for white kids is completely different. They don't start really playing acoustic guitars until 1960 when the folk boom happens, when, you know, um, the Kingston trio have a hit with John, uh, Tom Dooley. So they're starting to pick up and learn to play three chords on a guitar. <clears throat> Those kids who were born in 1940 when they're, when they're you know, they're 18, 19. Whereas... Our kids, by the time they're 18 and 19, they're already in Hamburg. Right. And what happens is, as a result of that, when the Beatles break America, there's already a whole cadre of, of battle-hardened musicians ready to come in behind them, you know? Because it may be, without Skiffle, that Lennon would have met McCartney. It may be right. they'd have had hits and written, formed a band, and it may be they'd have broke America. But without Skiffle, there would have been no... Dave Clark Five, there would have been no Rolling Stones, there would have been no Who, there would have been no any of those bands to come in behind them. They would have been a one, an amazing one-off. 
in some ways, like Dusty Springfield or, or someone like, you know, Ken Dodd or something like that. But it's, it's Skiffle that gets our kids to be uh, really experienced already in not just making music, but creating their own music. It's the, yeah, Skiffle is the nursery of the British invasion. So do you think without Skiffle there wouldn't have been punk? Well, that's a, that's a good question, that, isn't it? That's a very good question because in, in many ways the punk generation are the first the first generation not to have any skifflers in them, you know, because ex-skifflers were still breaking through in the mid-70s, you know, Motley Upal, they, they, you know, they were all ex-skifflers. Elton John, Bowie, you know, ABBA, the two main songwriters from ABBA had been in a skiffle band in Sweden. You know, punk is the music of the kids who were born at peak skiffle, 1957. Mm. So they're, they're, they're coming with a completely different... They have no idea, really, about skiffle. They've just got this impulse to sweep away what has gone before. They don't know that that impulse has been present before in British youth culture. And and that's that was the, the original time, you know. And I don't think there there's necessarily an... an 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 easily drawn line, but the similarities are, mm. you know, it almost, you know, put one over the other, and it's an all, almost a, a complete fit. Uh, and and the great thing is that um, when the uh, the first punk rock festival happened um, at the Hundred Club over a weekend in in 1976, and the you know the Pistols and the Clash and the Buzzcocks came down. In fact, probably every punk band in the UK played on that weekend at the Hundred Club. The night after, Ken Collier played with his jazz men. Amazing. And uh, I just wonder Amazing. if he kind of looked at the, the mess they'd created <laughs> and thought to himself, well, it's actually, you know what, <laughs> I see something. In, because he's, you know, when, when he was first playing, when he was a teenager, first playing uh, trad jazz, which is very raw compared to the swing music of the time, you know, him and his, him and his band were dismissed as cavemen. Yeah, I mean, he comes across as being somebody who's like quite full on. I mean, I think you say that the, the venues were quite kind of rough and ready and the audiences were quite messy and, and the, the band was quite messy, loud and, uh, uh, you know, quite ragged and sort of pumped up with energy. It was all quite punk, right? You know, we're back at the Roxy. Right. So, you know, that's, that's, it's those, it's that, those connections I think are more powerful than any, conscious idea it's an amazing time i mean i think that's it just it it just the context of that time i think has in some ways been forgotten it is a very long time ago now and those you know those some of the guys that i interviewed uh, for the book you know they're in their 80s they're not going to be around right. forever so it's it's worth it's worth re remembering them they're the they're the first whatever whatever came after they've done it first Right, the first DIY musical revolution, as uh, John Savage says about your book. And um, thank you so much, Billy, for walking us through that, the lost world of Skiffle, and also, of course, you know, the countercultural context of the 1950s and 60s and all the uh, influence it had later. And I love that uh, comparison with punk too. Uh, thanks very much. Appreciate that. My pleasure. Nice speaking to you, Stephen. Great stuff. Well, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. That was quite enlightening, actually, for me. 
Do check out Billy's book, Roots, Radicals and Rockers. Um, it's a terrific tale, and I hope we will get him back to talk about his time in the 80s in the musical counterculture then. And we hope we get you back to listen to another episode, another tale from the underground, from the other side, on the Bureau of Lost Culture. Check us out, bureauoflostculture.com. We are now also on all the major podcast providers, Apple Music, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Listen Notes wherever, wherever. So you can subscribe there if you like. And if you want to leave us a five-star review, that'd be terrific. Anyway, in the meantime, see you next time. I'm Stephen Coates. This was the Bureau of Lost Culture. <laughs>